Galatians 3, and I'll be there in just a moment. So just to kind of jog our memories, um, I want to recall that in this letter, like Paul's mad, like dad's mad, all right, he's upset. He didn't waste much time getting into um, the heart of the matter. Pastor Micah walked us through week one and showed the church, showed us how the church in Galatia um, were being misled by these false teachers, these Judaizers, um, how we were called by grace, how we were changed by the power of God, and what it means to be committed to the gospel. And last week, Brother Dave walked us through how Paul was showing, um, how Paul was showing the church these kind of three different um, pictures of faith and how it is faith alone and Christ alone that is right belief and the right behavior uh, of a Christian. In our time together, we're going to see how Paul, he's really going to go like full lawyer in this, uh, in this uh, chapter. And he's going to really show these Judaizers what it means um, to, be a, uh, to have faith in Christ, that you can't add stipulations to uh, the word. And mainly uh, what the Judaizers were doing, they were telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised, they needed to adopt these Jewish rules, they needed to start eating kosher. Um, praise the Lord, that is not the case, because I don't think I could do without bacon. Um, so... These Judaizers, uh, Judaizers, though, did such a good job at the church that they even had Peter convinced, and he's no longer eating with the Gentiles and um, really dividing the church in Galatia. And what we're going to see is that Paul is going to lay the groundwork that we are free in Christ. We are saved by faith, not by works. And sometimes we have a tendency to think about freedom in Christ in kind of the wrong kind of light. Like, we're American, right? We're born in the USA. We're, we're free. We hear lots of talks about what it means to be free. We hear lots of songs about freedom or being free. Like, you know, Kid Rock said we were born free. Tom Petty said we were free fallen. And good old Leonard Skinner said we were free birds. I'm not fallen. Um, I might have been born in the USA, but that doesn't mean I was born free of sin. And I'm not a bird. All right, if anything, I'm a hungry, hungry hippo. All right, so I think they kind of missed the mark on what it means to truly be free. Um, I really like what C.S. Lewis had to say, um, and he said that if you don't feel like this place is your home, then the only logical conclusion is that we were created to be somewhere else, right? And this earth is not our home, and there's only true freedom in Christ, and we're going to see that this morning. See, Paul is going to use the Judaizers' own arguments against themselves and all the while pointing to the only true freedom in the entire world, Jesus. So we're going to read most of chapter 3, so you're going to stay seated, um, but stand in your hearts. And we're going to read verses 1 through 25. And starting at verse 1, um, I want you to pay attention to how many rhetorical questions he asks in the first five verses, or six verses. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you so, suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it, 
Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed by everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, but rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It, is, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under the sun, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lord, may your word and your truth be spoken this morning. Lord, may you be glorified. Lord, may we see what you are trying to show us. May our hearts and minds be open to your word. We love you, Lord. We need you and we praise you. Amen. All right, you can stay seated. All right, I love how this chapter starts off. We get five questions Five verses, and they're all rhetorical questions, like, who bewitched you? Um, he's using pagan language here, <laughs> all right? Are you so foolish? That's like when you say something you shouldn't have to your wife, and she says, what did you say? That's like, red alert, red alert, mission abort, don't answer the question, and definitely don't repeat what you just said type of deal, all right? But the big question that surrounds all of this is he asks, did you receive the Spirit by the law? Or by hearing with faith. And then he closes off with a rhetorical question. With just as Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul brings up Abraham and the law. In these five verses. And to a Jew the law is associated with Moses. And that would bring that to the forefront of their mind. And see when the law is mentioned here. It, sometimes in the Bible it can refer to the Ten Commandments. Um, or it can refer to the entire law. And when Paul talks about the law. He normally typically talks about. The entire law. Um, but we'll talk about that in a little bit down the road. 
See, we have three things we're going to cover this morning, and they all have to do with covenants, promises, oaths. Um, these are binding contracts God made in the Bible with his people. Paul is going to clearly make the case on why these two covenants point us to the third. And the first covenant we are going to speak on is God's covenant with Abraham. And through God's covenant with Abraham, we see a necessity of faith. See, God's promises shows us the necessity of faith. Remember, Paul was writing to a church where there were some false teachers, the Judaizers I spoke about earlier. And these were people who were claiming, okay, you believe in Jesus, but then you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the Jewish rule and this Jewish regulation in order to be saved. See, they're adding requirements and stipulations to salvation. So if you remember from last week, Brother Dave talked about having the right faith. Faith alone through Christ alone. And that was the way Galatians 2 ended. Now he is starting to defend justification through faith alone. And he is going to use the Judaizers' own arguments against them. If you look at verse 6 with me. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting Genesis 15 here. Okay? God is speaking to Abraham, or he was called Abram at this time. And God said, look towards heaven and remember the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to them, so your offspring shall be. And he believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. So he was righteous in the eyes of the Lord because he had faith in God. Now, this is where it kind of gets interesting. Remember the, the children's Sunday school song? And y'all can sing it with me if you want to. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. So let's just praise the Lord. All right? Left foot, right? right. So this is essentially what Paul is doing. In Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you are a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what had Abraham done to deserve this from God? Absolutely nothing. As Pastor David Platt pointed out, for all we know, Abraham at this point might have been a pagan guy who was not seeking after God. This was initiated by God. And think about this in chapter 15 when he said he would be a blessing to many nations. Remember that Abraham didn't even have a son at this point. He didn't even have an heir to his own family, yet he believed God and counted to him as righteousness. It is through grace and grace alone that God blesses his people. Understand that not only does Abraham not have a son, but he is 99 years old. And his wife Sarah is 90 years old. Not exactly the ideal age to start a family. All right? In fact, when Sarah is told that she is going to get pregnant, she laughs. All right, she laughs like I laugh when I hear a Georgia fan tell me that they're going to win the national championship this year. All right? 40 years and counting. All right? But Sarah can laugh all she wants because it has nothing to do with what she and Abraham bring to the table. It's what God is bringing to the table by his grace. And just thank you, God, for his, your grace. If we were to keep reading in Genesis 15, we would get to God entering into a covenant with Abraham. Pastor Micah talked about this two weeks ago. And if you remember, when making a covenant, you would cut animals in half and lay them across from one another to where you were making like a dead carcass runway. Okay? 
and the two parties would walk together in the middle of said carcass highway, symbolizing that they were entering an oath or with one another, and if they were to break the oath, they would be dead like the animals around them. And God does this with Abraham, except there's one key difference from what normally happens to what happens with Abraham. Only God walks through dead carcass highway. Abraham's out like a light. He was sleeping when this happened. This was a unilateral covenant. God is saying, based on my grace, I am doing this covenant. And through you, um, even though you bring absolutely nothing to the table, you are going to receive my blessing. So how does Abraham receive this blessing? It's by grace alone that God blesses his people. And it is through faith alone that God's people receive his blessing. Through faith, by grace, through faith. Think about, uh, uh, think about it like this. In Genesis 12, Abraham will be a blessing to many nations. Genesis 15, he is told he will have an heir, and he believed. It is not until Genesis 17 that Abraham gets circumcised at the age of 99. Ouch. David Platt noted that Paul is saying it was not after Abraham was circumcised, it was before he was circumcised. Before he even did that, he was already justified by faith. Not based on what he's done, but based on what God had done in his life. Based completely on God's grace. By grace alone, through faith alone. And this is the picture that Paul is establishing. Um, I can't really get into everything, but he even quotes Habakkuk 2.4 later on. That the just shall live by faith and the just uh, will live by faith. When I was studying and getting ready for this sermon, the, the just live by faith. My mind went to, to Corey Ten Boom. I'm currently reading um, the book called The Hiding Place. And it's Corey Ten Boom's book. And in the book, she talks about a time she discovered that God was working even in the midst of horrific circumstances. Corey and her sister, Betsy, had been imprisoned by the Nazis for hiding Jews behind the wall of their home in uh, Holland. And the Nazi prison conditions were pretty well unbearable. And she said in her book, and Barracks 8 was in the quarantine compound next to us, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers, where located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of a cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in a regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. But yet, in the midst of this suffering, the women prisoners around Corey and Betsy found comfort in the little Bible studies they held in their barracks. Corey writes that they gathered around the Bible like wafts clustered, uh, clustered around a blazing fire. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God, is what she wrote. When they were moved to barracks 28, Corey was horrified by the fact that there were reeking straw bed platforms swarmed with fleas. How could they live in such a place? It was Betsy who discovered God's answer. And it says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. 
And she said, that's it, Corey, that's the answer. God gives in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barrack. And it says, I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. And then they thank God for the fact that they were together. They thank God that they had a Bible. They even thank God for the horrible crowds of prisoners, that more people would be able to hear God's word. And then Betsy thanked God for the fleas. The fleas. That was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. And she said, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas, but this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. It turns out that Betsy was not wrong. The fleas were a nuisance, but a blessing after all. The women were able to have Bible studies in the barracks with a great deal of freedom. They were never bothered by the supervisors coming in and harassing them. They finally discovered it was the fleas that kept the supervisors out. Through those fleas, God protected these women from abuse and harassment. Dozens of desperate women were free to hear the comforting, hope-giving word of God. Through these fleas, God protected the women from much worse things and made sure they had their deepest, truest needs met. What a testimony of living by faith. These women were thanking God for the fleas, but if I stub my toe in the, uh, in the morning, I'm yelling, God, why are you forsaking me? Not really, but you, you get my point. See, by grace alone, God blessed his people. By faith alone, God's people receive his blessing, even the most likely blessings like fleas. Now understand that grace alone through faith alone does not lead to an immoral lifestyle. You don't get to get road hard and put up wet living for Jesus. All right? Those that know that they have been saved by grace and grace alone through faith alone live a very different life than the rest of the world. They realize that they are not just saved by faith. They live by faith. The just live by faith. Think about Abraham. He is justified by faith. And what happens after that? He is circumcised. But back in Genesis 12, before he was even circumcised, God gave him this promise. And what did he do? He packed up his bags and he said, God, I'll go wherever you lead me. He's trusting God to lead him every step of the way. He lived radically for God. And I mean, Abraham would later almost sacrifice his son because he was radically obedient. People who live by grace through faith live radically different lives than the rest of the world. Why? Why do we do that? Because we believe God and we know that we don't need the stuff that we hold on to in this world. We don't need stuff the junk that satisfies us for like half a second. We know that God is good and we know that God is all satisfying and the comforts that this world has offered are no longer important to us because God is precious to us and, they won't, and we want God and we believe God. They believe that he's enough for us. And, and we're not saying, well, I got grace through faith so I can do whatever I want and live how I want. I was born free. I'm a free bird. No, 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 Scooter. See, that's not living by grace through faith. People who live like that know so little of grace and so little of faith. The reason we don't live radical lives like the men and women of Hebrews 11 talk about is because we like faith. If you want the honest truth, we like faith. We, we need to believe God, to believe that he is good, that he is worth risking everything for, risking our lives for. He is that good. When we believe God, that's the life that flows from faith. Before, but before we move on to the next covenant, there is a key truth we must understand. When the Judaizers were saying, okay, Abraham, faith, 
we see that. But then God gave us the covenant with Moses. That involved the law. So essentially their argument is God used to go through faith alone, but then they got the law. The Judaizers are saying that what happened with Moses trumped what happened with Abraham. But what we are about to see is that God's covenant with Moses does not contradict his covenant with Abraham. So moving on to Paul's second argument, God's covenant with Moses. God's law shows us the futility of the flesh. In Galatians 3, Paul mentions the law over and over and over. He sounds like a broken record. And as I said earlier, when Paul was referring to the law here, he is referring to everything that was given to Moses back in Exodus, in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so what happens in Galatians 3.10, and he kind of circles around it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all the way to verse 25. He starts talking about what the law cannot do. The law cannot bring life. The law cannot bring salvation. The law cannot bring righteousness. The law cannot do any of these things. So he gets to verse 19, and that's the key verse. Look at uh, Galatians 3.19. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? Why do we have the law then if it cannot bring life or bring righteousness? What's the purpose? The purpose is to show us the futility of the flesh. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, we have been controlled by the flesh. By our sinful nature. Okay? Our default mode is not to follow God, but to go against God, to take him off the throne and put ourselves there. We want to be the master of our lives. We want to have complete say on what we do and what we do not do. The law shows us our sinful desires. It shows that we disobey the law of God. Paul said all who rely on observing the law are under a, cur a curse. So if you follow the law, you're under a curse. He is quoting from Deuteronomy 27. God's law said anyone who doesn't follow everything in the law is cursed. The law demands perfect obedience. That's why Jesus would say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 5, he's talking about the Old Testament law. He gets to the end and he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Perfection's the standard. I don't think any of us can, can meet that standard because we disobey the law of God. The law confronts us with the fact that we can't obey it perfectly. Not one of us in this room can. The law of God confronts every single one of our hearts with commands from God, and we resist it. We do things our own way, and the law exposes our sin. Not only does the law expose our sin, but the law actually intensifies our sin. It makes it worse. So as the law exposes our sin, it brings sin to the light more and more and more and more and more. We resist the law and we sin. It comes out and it's just like a spiral effect. And our hearts are going harder and harder and harder towards God. Were it not for grace, they would continue in that way. God, thank you for your grace because it keeps me from continually resisting the law. Not only do we disobey all of us disobey the law of God, but as a result, we all deserve the wrath of God. We are all black-hearted, wretched sinners in need of a Savior. We all deserve hell, and the only way we avoid it is by the grace of God. We are cursed under the law. That means we stand condemned before God, condemned before God. This was the whole point of the law that we are condemned before God. It's not good to be standing before a holy God and be confronted with your sin. 
It's not a good thing because now to be confronted with the law, because the law exposes our sin because uh, before a holy God, and we are standing there before God who is dead set against sin, a God who is set to judge sin, who eternally hates sin, and we are covered in it. The law has confronted that. Thanks a lot, law. Thank you for bringing that to the surface before God. This is why Martin Luther said the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, to show men their sin, that by the knowledge therefore of, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace. In other words, he says, when the law does its work, you, are, you will go running for cover because you know you've got a major problem. This verse right there, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. Notice it doesn't say cursed are the atheists or the agnostics or cursed are the pagans who just run off in immorality. It says cursed are the people who try to obey God. What is that about? Cursed are those who try to bring the law to life in their life. Thinking that this is going to bring them life, cursed are those who Let's use contemporary terminology here. We go to church. We don't stay home, but we go to church. We read our Bibles and pray, and we try to do good things, and we try to lead our families and do the right things because at every turn and every attempt, do you know what the law says to every attempt? Guilty. It says over and over again to everyone in this room, guilty, guilty, guilty. It keeps saying it. You try harder the next time. Guilty. You try harder next week. Still guilty. Next year, <laughs> guilty. Does that make you feel hopeless? Makes you feel like a Georgia fan, doesn't it? That's what it's supposed to do. If it doesn't make us feel that way, we're missing the entire point. That's what the law does. It says stop trying because you're not getting it right. Why? Because you can't. The law was not given to help you make it right. The law was given to show you that you're disobedient to it. And as a result, you stand under the curse and condemnation of God. And that's the purpose of the law that Paul is highlighting here. Why is he telling us this? The reason comes in Galatians 3, 22 through 24. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here's the picture. Here we're sitting chained in our sin and in our inability to obey God or be right before God based on anything we do. We're cursed, condemned in our sin. And here stands Jesus, and he is completely righteous. He has no sin in him. He is a lamb without blemish or defect. He is right before God. He alone, and he steps in, and he says, I'll take the curse for you. And I'll take the condemnation for you. Now we are at the most important covenant in the entire Bible. And this is the last one. God's covenant through Jesus. God's son shows us the price of freedom. The whole point of the law has been to send us on our faces before God saying, we need you to save us. We need you to break us free from these chains of sin that are in me, the chains that are holding me captive completely, and, we hold, and will hold me captive for all eternity unless you save me. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. 
Everything in the Old Testament was building to Christ coming. Everything. Everything in the, New Te- or the Old Testament finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Matthew 5 says, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, to complete the law. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. Well, how did he do that? Well, one, he fully obeyed the law of God for us. There is no other person in the Bible, no other religious teacher in the history of the world that can claim righteousness before God based on their own merit. No one. You cannot name one other person in all of history of the world that can be righteous before God based on their own merit. Not Muhammad, not Gandhi, not Buddha, not the Virgin Mary, sorry Catholics, only Jesus. He obeyed the law of God for us, but not only did he obey the law of God, even having obeyed the law of God, he endured the wrath of God instead of us. He endured the wrath of God instead of us. Galatians 3.13 says he redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Those two words, if you have a Bible, circle them. For us. They are the two of the most beautiful words in the entire New Testament. He redeemed us. This is a word Paul uses. It's a word that was used in that day to describe how you would pay the price to buy slaves so you could set that slave free. Paid the price. He took the curse upon himself to set us free. He endured the wrath of God instead of us. He fulfills the law of Moses. But just not the law of Moses. He completes. Jesus completes the promise to Abraham. He is the seed to come. You look in Galatians 3.19. It says the law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Well, who's that seed? You go back to verse 16 and it says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Not seeds. Many people, but one seed, meaning one person who is Jesus. This is the picture. This is why. When you get to the book of Matthew, you don't immediately start with a beautiful Christmas story. Instead, you start with a bunch of names. What's the point of the names? Who sits around on Christmas morning reading names? However, this is the point. He is from the line of Abraham. He's from the line of Abraham. He lived perfectly, righteously by faith in the line of Abraham. He fulfills the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 12. Through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed in his death, his resurrection from the grave. All nations, people in Jacksonville, Florida, can be credited righteousness before God, even people in Athens. Because of him, we receive the blessings of God. Christ completes the promises of Abraham as well. Everything in Abraham is pointing to God. John 8, 56, Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jewish leaders. And he says, by the way, Abraham saw my day and he was glad when he saw it. All right, that's a pretty bold statement. All right, Abraham was looking forward to me. And that's the whole picture. All throughout the Old Testament, how are people saved in the Old Testament before Christ came? They're saved the same way we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've seen that. They're looking forward to Jesus. Maybe they didn't know all the details of the whole picture, how it's going to play out, but they're looking to Christ in the way we look back to Christ. Okay, by grace alone, he gives salvation to us. Paul is saying here in Galatians 3, what are you going to do to earn your salvation? In light of this gigantic, monumental story that all centers on Jesus, do you really think being circumcised makes that much of a difference? No, we, we do not add to the work of Christ. He is your righteousness. Believe him. 
trust in him. For by grace alone, he gives salvation for us. David Platt noted that this is huge. It's stunning, really, because it separates Christianity from the whole landscape of religion in the world. Because this is not a system of moral improvement that we have in the Bible. This is not a surefire way to make your life better, to work and follow these principles to your best life. This doesn't lead to worldly health, wealth, and happiness. This is not your best life now. This is not how to be more moral or better. It's not the point. The point of Christianity is you can't do that, and your need is not for a better life. Your need is for a new life. You aren't a little dirty, and you need to clean up one or two things, and then you're going to be all right. Your need is not to try to work harder and be better and check off the boxes. God doesn't want you checking off boxes like you accomplished something for him. Read my Bible today. Check. That's not what it's about. What do you think that does for you? How is that improving your relationship with God? Just making sure you're here on Sundays and making sure you're going through the routines and making sure you're doing things the way you're supposed to do them. No, be free from that. Be free from that. Don't try to improve yourself. Crucify yourself. Slay yourself. That's what he said in Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ, I no longer live, dead. Instead, Christ lives in me. He is my everything. He is my righteousness. He is my joy. He is my peace and he is my life. He is my everything. That is what Christianity is designed to be, church. That should have got a few amens. Well, that's all right. I'm preaching way better than y'all are staying awake. All right. By his grace, he gives salvation to us through faith alone. Now, this is where it gets real, real good. Look at Galatians 3.14. Listen to this. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. If you take a quick look around, we're mostly Gentiles in this room. Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive blessing. No, not just blessing. We might receive the promise of the, the what? The Spirit. By grace alone, he gives us salvation to us. Through faith alone, we receive his Spirit in us, and that changes everything. The primary purpose of the Spirit in us is to glorify Christ, to continuously turn our hearts and our minds and our affections and our lives towards Jesus, who's everything for us. Those of you who know him and know that, you're, that he's your righteousness, you know you're a Christian, and remind you as you're struggling with sin in whatever way that looks like in your, in your life in this room, um, know that the point of the text today is not tell you to go out and do better. All right? Don't be better than you were last week. You can't. The point is to tell us, go to Christ. You can't do it without him. You need him. He is your victory. He is your peace. His spirit lives in you to give you victory. If you're wrestling, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're walking through things, you just can't put it all together. Don't try to figure it out on your own and make this work. If I could just do this and this and this, I just need time to work on you know, you're going to fall flat on your face. And your heart before him, what you need to do is just say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. I see Jesus. He's my everything, and all I want is him. And I pray all you want is Jesus. We're now going to enter into prayer and enter into a final time of worship. I would encourage you, if the Lord is calling you to do something, just don't stand in the pew. Pray at the altar, speak with Pastor Micah. Whatever the Lord is calling you to do, I pray that you do it. And I pray that you were able to see how all the, the big Old Testament covenants pointed to God, or pointed to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you. Lord, you are our peace. You are our victory.
Lord, the entire Bible points to you. You are the only way to salvation. Lord, we need you more and more and more. It is through faith alone, through Christ alone, that we can have salvation. All by your grace, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we would not be here without your grace and mercy. Thank you for how you're working in our lives. We love you, Lord. We need you and we praise you. Amen.